friend in Washington is someone who stabs you in the chest. This is one of the jokes Brent Skokroff uses to begin his talks. And while he has a great many very good, very close friends, he's also been betrayed by those closest to him. I want to thank the Strauss Center and the Clements Center for inviting me. Incidentally, both William Clements and Robert Strauss make brief appearances in the book. I'd like to thank Will Inboden, Bobby Chesney, Paul Miller, Ashley Moran, Steve Slick, Jessica Mahoney, and Catherine Evans in particular for making this possible. And thank you for coming. I'll do this now since you might have to leave early or because you may be unhappy by the end of the talk. (laughs) Incidentally, when I first thought about what I'd title the biography, there are a few books called The Strategist. In the meantime, three books have been published with that very same title. One is a police procedural, another is a financial thriller, and a third is advice on how to be the leader your business needs. So much for planning. What's interesting, though, is that in, many, in Washington, many do not consider Brent Scowcroft as a strategist, but merely as one of Richard Nixon's and Gerald Ford's advisors, as national security to Ford and Bush 41, as Paul mentioned, and as a longtime Washington insider. So for some, the title may ring counterintuitively. And if he isn't a strategist in the sense of a Sun Tzu or a Karl von Clausewitz, neither is he an abstract theorist in the manner of Walt Rostow in his stages of growth and anti-communist manifesto, or world historical analyst in the manner of Henry Kissinger's sweeping arguments in world order. In fact, several of my interviewees, including a former Secretary of Defense and a former National Security Advisor, told me they didn't especially think of Scowcroft as a strategist, with one NSC official during the Reagan years saying he regarded Scowcroft as, quote, operating between the 40-yard lines. Yet those who have worked with Scowcroft most closely, U.S. and foreign officials like, including Helmut Kohl, have spoken admiringly of Scowcroft's strategic sense. It's just that he's kept this sense out of public view, if with a few exceptions. One exception has been his op-eds, most notably that in the August 2002 Wall Street Journal, which enjoined the George W. Bush administration not to rush to war against Iraq. And while Scowcroft has written about 100 op-eds over the last four decades, almost all of them understandably went out of office, these provide only a piecemeal and periodic glimpses of him as a strategist. His strategic vision is further revealed in his co-authored commission and study reports, but these, too, are directed at specific mandates and limited by their short length. Even in his co-authored books, Skullcraft has received a second billing, if perhaps because of the tyranny of the alphabet, repression many of us have felt. There's also been published interviews with him in journal articles he's written, but these two have been limited in scope and focus. Perhaps the best public source is his oral history at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, but it overwhelmingly focuses on the Bush years and with the agenda set by the interviewing team, not Scowcroft himself. Because of these reasons, his global vision has not been visible on the order of a George Kennan, a Richard Nixon, or a Henry Kissinger. At least not yet, I might add. This is where the publication of his memoirs may help, since he'll be addressing his overarching philosophy and general approach to national security policy and international relations. He's worked discreetly instead, almost always behind the scenes, whether in small groups, one-on-one, or in closed meetings. 
So these are from um, the Ford Library and sort of um, uh, uh, Ford, Ford sort of the, the White House photographer. Um, you get a sense of him and, and his interactions, and you see the different um, places on the White House grounds and the Oval Office and then in the Kennebunkport. These are NSC meetings. Air Force One and listening to the phones and so forth. Of particular significance has been Scowcroft's relationship with the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Kissinger, with whom he worked closely after the Nixon's re-election and then once Ford took office. The two collaborated on almost all policy decisions between 1973 and 1977, a period in which Kissinger called Scowcroft his full partner. Yet this partnership has took place almost entirely behind doors, and because of that reason, it's gone unnoticed by almost all journalists, diplomatic historians, and others who have written on the national security policy over the Nixon and Ford administrations. But as Vice President Ford's tutor on foreign policy in the months before Nixon's resignation, and as someone whose agenda was only the, that of the President and the United States, Scowcroft, in fact, became Ford's most trusted foreign policy advisor. Then in 1983, the Reagan administration brought in Scowcroft to resolve the MX missile controversy, and in late 1986, he was asked to serve on the three-person tower board to investigate the Iran-Contra scandal. Scowcroft subsequently became George Bush's right-hand man, and in early 2001, he helped George W. Bush with U.S.-China relations after the Hainan Island incident and in intelligence reform, advice on the latter issue that went mostly unheeded. He then worked quietly with Bush 43's foreign policy team in their second term and has occasionally given advice to the Obama White House, especially early in the administration. So let me give a sense of his strategic thinking in terms of keeping the big picture in mind, working with the pieces in play, and being operationally effective. One is with the British pound collapsing in 1976 and with Secretary of State Kissinger and Treasury Secretary William Simon at loggerheads, Scowcroft stepped in and quietly worked out an arrangement for concessions by Prime Minister Callahan's labor government for a $4 billion IMF rescue package backed by the United States and supported by Germany and France. This is a great deal of money at the time. The key was, with the pound sinking in world markets, any publicity would provoke a further run on the pound. So all the negotiations had to be kept secret away from the press. And this involved what we would now call sort of neocons or neoliberals in the Ford White House who said, no, this is a labor government. We want to give them absolutely nothing. And then concerns by Scowcroft and others that, well, maybe if, if uh, Britain, something happens to Britain and its labor government, what about this anchor to NATO and this important ally in Western Europe? Another example was Scowcroft's advice to President Bush in early 1989 that the United States and the Soviet Union both withdraw their ground forces from Central Europe. So that is to say that after 40-odd years of the Cold War, he advocated that they both withdraw all of their conventional forces out of Central Europe. His logic was that the NATO minus the U.S. in comparison to the Warsaw Pact minus the USSR would be to the United States' net advantage and would take the initiative away from Mikhail Gorbachev. Although the idea provoked a firestorm in the administration, especially from Defense Secretary Cheney, the president agreed to a scale-back version of the plan. 
A third was his decision on the Scowcroft Commission and later under Bush 41 to push for radically reducing the number of MIRVed warheads and returning to downloading in nuclear weapons lexicon to single warhead ICBMs. Scowcroft's argument, and one that gradually prevailed, was that MIRVed rockets with up to 10 warheads each were more attractive both as targets and as weapons that could be used than were single warhead ICBMs. In fact, this is the logic of reducing the number and lethality of strategic weapons that infuse START and START II. Other bold mo- moves reflective of him as a strategist were his insistence that, that Iraq leave Kuwait by means of coercion if need be, a point at which he quickly persuaded the president and other, others in the administration. Although, interestingly, Scowcroft for a long time has insisted that that was Bush's leadership and has maintained that, but Bush and others in the White House know that kind of Scowcroft was the one kind of behind this, behind this uh, firming, firm resolution. His willingness to support the troop surge in 2007, and most recently his advice to the United States not provide any arms for Ukraine. So what has allowed Scowcroft to have such enduring influence on national security policy? So, so much that for the years, um, well, for decades, he's been one of the most admired, if not the most admired, elder statesman in the nation's capital. One quality is his ability to keep the eye on the ball, on the United States' longer-term interest, military, political, economic, whether in his capacity as Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, as military assistant to the president, as deputy national security advisor, or as national security advisor proper. Yet this ability to look down the road would be of little use without the ability to see the moving parts, to anticipate the other vehicles, the upcoming curves, the obstructions ahead. And here is where his scholarly qualities, his analytic abilities, his objectiveness, and his curiosity had enabled him to look down the road with strong vision. Providing him with that vision has been a study of world history and international relations. A graduate of the Armed Forces Staff College, the National War College, and as a professor at West Point and then the Air Force Academy, and as a Columbia PhD in international relations. Thanks to the scholarship and curiosity, he's been able to get a feel for the factors in play, sense their tendencies and trajectories, and gauge their possible effects. Like a skilled chess player, he's been good at seeing the pieces on the board and figuring out how the opposing player or players might respond. These were characteristics honed under the tutelage of Air Force Major General Richard Yudkin, also a defense intellectual and one of the developers of the Single Integrated Operations Plan, PSYOP. While, the Pentagon, uh, while they were working in the Pentagon together, Yudkin helped Scowcroft learn how the U.S. government operated, how the different bureaucracies functioned, and how they interacted with the research and scientific communities, industry, and other actors. Later then, from working under Kissinger, Scowcroft honed his sense of the international system and became more comfortable working with the press. All the same, a strategist has to be relevant. One could be a superb strategist, whether as a military planner, campaign consultant, or analyst of current events, but if she or he is on the sidelines and he or her ideas are ignored, that person cannot be considered a strategist. Kennan is renowned for his long telegram and Mr. X article in Foreign Affairs, the sources of Soviet conduct. Yet after this white-hot burst of influence, policymakers essentially ignored him over the next five decades while he was at Princeton and on his Pennsylvania farm. Another aspect of strategists is operational then. It's hard to think of any other policymaker in recent times whose expertise and judgment has been as consistently influential at the highest levels of government.
This trust has discernible and distinct roots. One is source is Scowcroft's multivocality, that is, his ability to speak credibly to separate audiences thanks to the range of his experiences and expertise. So this is experience and expertise in international relations, in nuclear weapons, in military affairs, in intelligence, and in economics. One uh, colleague of his said he was his own international lawyer. Further, not only can Scowcroft speak authority on these separate issue areas, he's able to consider how they intersect and interact. Another is his willpower and drive. One comment his superior officers made repeatedly in his efficiency ratings while he was in the Air Force was Scowcroft's ability to keep growing with no apparent upper ceiling. He would have clearly received a four-star, as had Alexander Haig and Colin Powell, had he not retired from the Air Force when he became National Security Advisor in November 1975. Something, by the way, that he didn't have to do. In fact, he could have uh, kept his military commission, and uh, as did others. <clears throat> a third factor of this trust is his cordial and respectful personality. Another frequent comment made by his superior officers was how easy he was to work with. He impressed his Air Force bosses not only with his initiative and willingness to go the extra mile, but his ability to be a team player, even if the ultimate decisions didn't even go his way. He had strong, well-informed views, to be sure, but he's willing to be persuaded by new evidence and strong argument. He listens. If he is very serious, reserved, and has rightly been described as very compartmentalized, he's also affable. He teases, he plays pranks, now less so, to be sure, has a very good sense of humor, and was not above uh, making off-color jokes. He gets along well with others. And he has a good sense of how to pitch his remarks, whether to associates, reporters, academics, military officers, foreign leaders, students, or young people. In fact, the interns at his office at the Scowcroft Group and on um, uh, Farragut Square refer to him as Yoda because he's you know, now almost 90. And, you know, so he's, Let me now turn from an explanation of the word strategist to elaborating on the subtitle, Brent Scowcroft and the Call of National Security. By the way, I should say that it feels odd to be writing about the life of someone who still participates in politics. He was just over in Saudi Arabia for King Abdullah's funeral and who still runs his own business. Of course, there are many biographies of presidential candidates and other prominent political figures who are still very much alive. So the question then becomes, do their lives merit this attention? And are, the, are there sufficient data for examining their lives? And um, here I can un- unequivocally say yes. So to the first part of my subtitle, the name Brent Scowcroft, no, inter- no middle initial. As a biography, obviously, I wanted to explore Scowcroft's roots. He was a member of a well-established family in Ogden, among the Mormons, uh, first Mormons of the Intermountain West. Job Pingree, Scowcroft's great grandfather was one of the captains of the Mormon companies making the overland trek from which is now Omaha to the Great Salt Lake Basin, and then later on founded Pingree National Bank and became a a prosperous and and important person. Another, Richard Ballantyne, was also a captain of a Mormon company, a missionary in India, and the founder of Mormon Sunday schools. Both Ballantyne and Pingree were polygamists, with Pingree being arrested in 1885 on a plague hunt and held in jail for a few weeks, as you can see. A third great-grandfather, John Scowcroft, arrived later by foot, by train that is, rather than by foot with the oxen, and founded a very successful company of food and dry goods wholesale merchants. 
And you can note the progressivism on the placard, um, talking about uh, 44-hour work weeks. And uh, his business was very much helped by the fact that Ogden was an entrepot for rail traffic throughout the West. Something like seven different railroads terminated or joined in Ogden. And so freight trains had to change engines and passengers had to switch from Union Pacific to Central Pacific trains or vice versa when traveling uh, transcontinentally. You can't go anywhere without coming to Ogden, town leaders boasted. Incidentally, during the Prohibition, Al Capone is reported to have said that Ogden, known as Little Chicago for its gambling rooms, brothels, opium dens, and crime, was too rough a town for him. Skokra's father managed the family business, and he was close to both his father and his mother, and by all accounts had a happy and active childhood, the youngest of th- three uh, children and the only boy. These are sort of, see, just kind of get a sense of the scale of Ogden in the in the 20s and, uh, and the family uh, business. But with his sisters being only four and seven years older, he was in some ways an only child. And acknowledging that he never heard his parents fighting, he rightly commented that his experience growing up gave him a distorted sense of his fellow humans. Now this background is all very fine, you might say, but what does this family history and these nice photos have to do with Scowcroft as an Air Force officer, a presidential advisor, an international business consultant, or a senior statesman? What they convey, it seems, is just how secure Scowcroft was growing up, secure psychologically, secure materially, and secure socially. He had no status anxiety. It wasn't motivated by a sense of deprivation or other contrarian reason to leave Ogden for West Point and then join the Army Air Corps or to pursue a career eventually in politics and government. This is him in the Army Air Corps. This is him right here. Uh, He's there. He's uh, trained out at, um, actually down at um, San Antonio and then was out at um, an Air Force base that's now defunct out in Arizona. And then he's up here in New Hampshire um, uh, fighting a a wing to protect the strategic air command bombers. This sense of security that he had would make the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the humiliating and dispiriting experiences of the U.S. Military Academy, and the two years in military hospitals following his near-fatal crash at the age of 24 that much more searing. Barely a month after the crash, there was more shocking news. His father had died of a heart attack at the age of 57. Lying in hospital beds and thinking about his future, he decided he didn't want to be in the family business, and he wanted to study and be in a position to influence national security policy. In fact, two Air Force generals assigned him to be military assistant so that he would get Kissinger's attention and be chosen as his deputy national security advisor. And, of course, that's what happened. The fact that the strategist is a biography has another implication, one of process. Biography provides, quote, no explicit conceptual framework for the selection, organization, and presentation of data, as one political scientist remarks. This makes it tough to study someone who often did not write things down, who does not boast of his own achievements, and whose records are only partially available. So I looked through what archival and oral histories I could, read the many books and articles on U.S. national security policy by historians, journalists, political scientists, and former policymakers, consulted other secondary sources on individual presidents, presidential administrations, and particular issues and regions, and otherwise, otherwise use what I could to bring, his, bring the man and his times to life. But to bring pers- 
perspective to these documents, to the scholarship, to these news reports and these oral histories and transcripts of uh, um, press conferences and panel discussions. I also conducted about 40 interviews with General Scowcroft and more than 100 others with many of his colleagues, associate friends and relatives, including some of those in this room. To an extent, biography is an exercise in imagination, as John Lewis Gaddis has noted. That is to say, the biographer tries to put on someone else's shoes. She or he has to envision being in someone else's world. Fully capturing that vision is a fool's errand, to be sure. Just as surely it is possibly as accurate and fair as possible, though. And being fair means not just selecting the positive, as some biographers do, or the negative, as other biographers do, but describing and interpreting the subject's thoughts and actions as well as one can, and then rendering them in light of his or her political circumstances. So let me turn to the last part of the subtitle, The Call of National Security. This refers to Scowcroft's vocation, military service as a mission. Beginning at the age of 12, uh, if not before, but at the age of 12, he read a brand new book, West Point Today, which captured his imagination, and he decided he wanted to attend the U.S. Military Academy. He would later serve as commandant of the Ogden High School ROTC, attend the U.S. Military Academy Prep School at Lafayette College. This is during uh, World War II. There were about eight of these uh, prep schools at the time. And then go on to West Point. He would then return to the U.S. Military Academy to teach and five years later go out to Colorado Springs to serve as associate department chair and then then department head at the almost brand new Air Force Academy. This sense of vocation carried Scowcroft through his harrowing first two years at West Point, the horrible plane crash, and the painful death of his father. And so he would dedicate himself to the Air Force, the White House, and several presidents and their administrations, as well as to other purposes, such as studying and writing reports for presidential and other commissions, and working with the Aspen Strategy Group, the Atlantic Council, and the Council of Foreign Relations, and other groups. It also carried him through caring for his wife, Jackie, who had type 2 diabetes. And Scowcroft would dash home or to the hospital in the late afternoon or early evening and then go back to work and then go home very late at night, only to get up then at 4.45 to be at work at 6 the next morning. And it was in large part because of this care, in addition to the fact that Scowcroft was often working 15 to 18-hour days, that Bush 41 was not in the least annoyed when Brent Scowcroft dozed off at meetings only to wake up and recover as though nothing had happened, which was the origin of the Scowcroft Award. This sense of vocation also meant that he served as the personal emissary for several U.S. presidents, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and others to the Soviet Union, China, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, Great Britain, and other countries for the discussion of particularly sensitive issues. He understood that for when he was now a security advisor, this dedication meant that it be, meant that he had to be an honest broker. And out of office, it meant serving as a chair or co-chair of Blue Ribbon Commissions and other study groups. These, then, are some of the reasons why I titled The Strategist, Brent Scowcroft, and the Call of Now Security. So what important elements or aspects of his life are not implicated by the title and subtitle? One, I think, is the momentous history of which Scowcroft was part. He played a key role, sometimes the key role, in many of the chief events of U.S. national security policy over the 40 years. I therefore devote almost two dozen chapters out of 31 to Scowcroft's actions in the White House under Nixon, Ford, and Bush 41, or as an advisor to Presidents Reagan and Bush 43. I followed two decision roles in these chapters. 
One was to focus on a few key events, such as the U.S. evacuations from Saigon and the development of U.S.-China relations, the Tower Board's investigation of the Iran-Contra scandal, the lead-up to and implementation of the 1991 Gulf War, and the decision to attack Iraq in 2003. At the same time, I also wanted to focus on Skokos' role in other important, if less well-known events, such as the reform in the intelligence community after the disclosure of the CIA's family jewels in 1974, the 1976 Korean tree crisis, also known as the Korean axe murder incident, and why Condoleezza Rice departed from the example set by her mentor and friend after 9-11, an example she said she wanted to follow. Another is Skokos' role in pioneering the development of the of the, uh, of the development that high-ranking government officials go into international business consulting after serving in office, a niche or rather niches that didn't exist before the 70s. So we can think of Kissinger Associates Incorporated, which Scowcroft actually co-founded, the Scowcroft Group, his own company, the Cohen Group with William Cohen, Albright Stonebridge with Madeleine Albright and Sandy Berger as two of the principals, and the Rice-Hadley-Gates um, Group and others. The other decision rule was to be as definitive as possible, given the archival records now available, even if many haven't been released, the recent scholarships by journalists, historians, political scientists, and former U.S. officials, and the ability to interview many of the participants in these events, a number of whom have already passed since I started, which is maybe more common on my fast progress than the health of my interviewees. Here my goal was to, against, to, to condense these issues into short chapters, since most of these topics have been the subjects of several or many books and articles, and to draw out Skolkov's role, given his reticence with our cable data, a scouring of secondary sources, and thorough interviews. Accordingly, the book offers new perspectives on the evacuation of Vietnam in April 75 and the Mayaguez two weeks later in May. Skolkov's performance as chair of the President's Commission of Strategic Forces, that is the Skolkov Commission, where President Reagan announced the support for FDI, Star Wars, in the midst of his own committee's assignment. The reasons behind the pause in U.S.-Soviet relations after Bush took office in 1989, the flows and ebbs and flows of U.S.-China relations in the months leading up to and then following Tiananmen Square, the rise and fall of the New World Order, the phrase used by the Bush administration in the lead-up to the 1991 Persian Gulf War, and the story behind Scowcroft's dissenting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in August 2002. Suffice it to say that Bush 41 did not put him up to it. But the title also obscures misjudgments, mistakes, and some less comfortable aspects of national security policy. One mistake, for example, was the mishandling of the Panama coup attempt of October 3, 1989, where the coup against Noriega could have easily succeeded, but the administration didn't have his act together. Scowcroft admitted, we were sort of keystone cops. Another was the almost total neglect of Afghanistan and Pakistan after the Soviets pulled out, with disastrous longer-term consequences, namely the blowback from the radical Mujahideen supported by the United States and Pakistan. Skokroft also voiced regret over how the administration had handled Yugoslavia, wishing in hindsight that he and the administration had been more proactive with what they knew about the atrocities in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Then, too, the administration misread the signs that Iraq was going to invade Kuwait in early August 1990. Neither does the title get at, and nor do I, at the Covert Actions Commissioner sanctioned by Scowcroft, whose role as National Security Advisor was to oversee covert action. 
nor does it get at the public diplomacy and public relations efforts of the Bush administration to get bills and resolutions passed, vetoes upheld, and presidential nominations approved. And I have a little bit on this. Finally, the book's title does not give a full sense of Scowcroft's internationalism, as the historian David Schmitz emphasizes. And he's the other biographer who writes a biography of, of Bush in, his, in his, terms of his internationalism and just as national security advisor under Ford and uh, Bush 41. As an enlightened realist, which is what he calls himself, he accepts the world as it is and believes the United States should work with existing powers in pursuit of common goals for the promotion of international stability. This means having open lines of communication with the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, Arafat and the PLO in the 70s, Iran, and other opposing governments or rogue states. Indeed, this has been the hallmark of his career, a combination of toughness, strong defense, walking softly and carrying a big stick, and being open to bilateral negotiations or multilateral agreements. So how then does the study of Scowcroft's life and his approach to national security policy inform us at present? Well, it seems for one, a study of his career and the implicit comparison that a biography of Scowcroft makes with national, other national security advisors and other administrations reveals the importance of personnel and interpersonal chemistry in the White House, both between the president and the national security advisor and the national security advisor and the president within the, department, within the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the DCI, and other, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and other principals. So that really brings out the importance of these interpersonal factors in making an administration successful. And we can think of other administrations, Reagan and perhaps the president and others, that have been much less successful at organizing national security advisor, uh, um, policy. So Scowcroft learned from the very difficult Nixon-Ford years and the Iran-Contra affair. Several things came clear from his experiences. The NSC had to coordinate policymaking and not conduct foreign operations, the president had his, and his principals had to be able to delegate responsibility for national security policymaking, which a lot of it fell to the deputies committee and the deputy national security advisor, which meant that this policy had to be closely coordinated and staffed. And then all the different agencies and their principals had to buy in to the president and his inner circle and their, their interpretation of U.S. national interest. Furthermore, what the Vietnam made glaringly apparent was that U.S. presidents and their staff had to work closely with Congress and the press if they were to lead effectively. This meant visits with members of Congress and reporters, both individually and in groups. It meant public appearances. It meant orchestrating campaigns to pass legislation, sustain vetoes, approve nominees, and achieve other objectives. In fact, the Bush administration did quite well, considering it had to work with Democratic majorities of both houses in Congress throughout its uh, tenure, and then media and public uh, uh, opinion that was arguably tired of a third term of Republican presidency. So that's one lesson. is about the kind of the interpersonal and the learning from Vietnam. And a second lesson is of his indirect approach. One of his characteristic ways of diffusing problems is to think about how to undermine their causes so the problems themselves dissipate. So this is kind of a policy through indirection. Rather than belligerently demand that the wall being torn down, for instance, Scowcroft and his NSC staff and administration worked to create the underlying conditions such that the Berlin Wall would no longer be necessary, so it would fall of its own accord. Now, of course, this wasn't entirely their own doing, but they put the processes and sanctions and incentives in place that that could happen. Scowcroft, Bush, and Baker, and these three with their staffs uh, pretty much ran things, wanted to take the initiative away from Gorbachev. Accordingly, this meant that they had to think through where they wanted to go, 
figure out what they want to achieve militarily, strategically, economically, and then provide a set of characteristics that would induce the Soviets to degree, which also meant, by the way, getting the UK, Germany, and France to degree, depending on the issue. Or to give another example of this indirection and to take away the motivating uh, causes is to make nuclear warfare unattractive as a military option for the U.S. and Soviet officials both by changing the circumstances of their strategic calculus. And the same applied to human rights, that they would best be furthered through the making of the reasons for repression no longer necessary, that is, through political and economic developments, as well as quiet diplomacy, rather than through exhortations or sanctions. The same principle, to turn to the present, would seem to apply to terrorism. Human and technological intelligence, drones, covert actions, and special operations may all be necessary, and may all have their places, but there's also a place for addressing their conditions so as to make the, a particular distorted view of Islam a less viable option and less attractive among Muslim populations. Jihad, after all, means religious duty. It can be peaceful and no way necessarily means violence or terrorism. The Quran is inconsistent, and ISIS and other radical groups omit important points about peace, respecting other faiths, and other tenets. This is to say that people's religion and spirituality can obviously be expressed in different forms, just as people themselves have cultural identities, material concerns, jobs, potable water, physical safety, as well as political concerns. This is a probabilistic issue then, and I think this is where Scowcroft would absolutely agree, about making the ground more fertile and tending it better so the plants that should grow do, and the worst sort of weeds do not. While this might seem like a chimera, I certainly don't, didn't imagine in my lifetime I'd already see the end of the IRA, the end of apartheid, and the end of the Soviet Union. Yet shifting politics, diplomatic initiatives, new policies, and political leadership confine, con, confine them to history's dustbin. A third thing I want to bring up in terms of the presence is secrecy and accountability. When I asked General Scowcroft about Edward Stone's leaks, he said he was against Stone's revelations, quote, with every fiber in his body. This is what I expected, consistent with his longtime support for executive privilege, presidential discretion, and strong intelligence, whether it's human, signal, covert, etc. Yet in the next breath, he surprised me by remarking that Stone's leak might, leaks might have a salutary impact by starting a constructive debate among members of Congress, the press, and the public about legislative oversight and democratic accountability. Indeed, both Stone and the CAA torturers of the recent Senate report were contractors, a fact that has received little attention thus far. Scowcroft believes in the United States. Now, you might think this to be old-fashioned, but I suspect that he would argue that recent U.S. actions detract from the United States' soft power and erode Americans' belief in their government. Not only does recent government action provoke cynicism, reduces the legitimacy of the U.S. government if, US, if presidents cannot make plausible claims of the United States being a city on the hill or a leader of the free world or as a shining point of light. The subtext here is that the United States faces a very real crisis of government, of record low approval ratings in the polls for Congress, the media, business, and other social actors. The turnout of eligible, eligible voters in 2014 midterm elections, the lowest in 72 years, that is in 1942 when many voters were dislocated because of military service or massive internal migration thanks to the revolutionized job market of the war. There's a feeling that the wars in the Middle East and in Afghanistan, as frightening as ISIS and al-Qaeda may be, are limitless, with well over half of Americans in polls over the last six months disapproving of the president's foreign policy. 
That is to say that there's a moral dimension to American politics that's now missing, a decline in the soft power of government, if not necessarily in other aspects of American culture and society that was there in the United States, that was there for the United States during the Cold War and first Gulf War. Such moral certitude did not spare presidents from having to make extremely tough decisions. Think of Korea, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Cuba, Vietnam, the Helsinki Final Act, but the overall objective was nonetheless clear. This begs the question of U.S. strategy then, where there's been nothing yet to replace the containment of the Soviet Union. In fact, the recent um, paper, the National Security, I forget what the title is, officially the National Security uh, Policy um, uh, that the, the government uh, issued uh, was had all sorts of purposes, all sorts of goals, but certainly did not have a sort of a single clear message. So we might ask, what is the United States for? Is it just against terrorism, extremism, ISIS, or some future group? What hope does the United States offer other people of the world, our children, our grandchildren? So I'm going to leave you with these questions, and it's because of these pleasant thoughts that I wanted to thank you beforehand. But thanks again. I think it's this combination of kind of the hawk and the dove. I mean, I think, well, I think one is his ability to coordinate, to think about the organization, his combination of, of kind of uh, what I talked about, keeping his eye on the ball, about thinking and being sort of this really patriot and being sort of selfless in pursuit of the presence and what he regarded as the country's goals, and then being and to then and knowing the different components of that, whether it's economic, strategic, you know, conventional military, what have you, and then having the operational skills to bear this out. And I think certainly in terms of the historically, I think the chief legacy is really going to be the end of the Cold War and the reunification of Germany and really that you have an empire collapsing with only a few dozen deaths. I mean, this is remarkable and unprecedented in history. So I think that's going to be the chief events in terms of the style. I think it's this organizational building. In fact, someone asked me a couple of days ago, well, what do we learn for the, in terms of the, um, you know, any first possible presidential candidate? And I would say is, well, look at how do they handle their staffs? How do they use their top advisors, especially on things that they don't know very much about? And that's something that I think the journalists and the public isn't inclined to look at. It's not terribly sexy, but you think in terms of thinking, well, how does this work, this kind of this interagency process, the ability to, to listen and coordinate it w- is critical and gets, doesn't get sufficient attention. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Here. Uh, Do you want to call gave Colin Powell some room as far as his opinions on the matter were concerned. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on how people who thought like Scowcroft were sort of marginalized in the first part of the Bush administration and maybe how that changed when Robert Gates took over as Secretary of Defense. Yeah, I mean, they, they were. I mean, you probably know that some the outstanding voices on the, on the Hill were kind of, uh, you know, kind of badgered and, and uh, um, threatened sort of journalists. There was some and it was really if you were, I mean, I think the lesson, it only took two or three examples for people to know that you were kind of outspoken against kind of this juggernaut. And we have to remember how fearful it was. I mean, Cheney said it was not a question of if, it's a question of when the next uh, ter- act of terrorism is going to happen. So there is this, and certainly the 
the president, his advisors. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of a blanket um, campaign to convince that this really is an imminent threat and that it's tied to Iraq. And so I think we have to realize and respect that. And so the result was that there you know, was this huge silencing sound effect. But I think what happens in, um, it's probably in 2004, really, and then with a brief pause of the election and then after that, is with the problems of the occupation and what happened there. And then, of course, uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney becoming less popular. And then you have Gates coming in in 2006 after the election. And uh, there, there was, um, you know, just uh, uh, the country had changed. The president himself, after 2004, changed. As I said, Scowcroft, one of the things I say, how I begin the book, is he never says, I told you so. And in fact, he, even though Condi Rice, who he'd made her career, and she's yelling him on the phone for something that she already, she already knew his policies on, on Iraq, and he doesn't get mad at her. He says, well, look, I'm going to keep working. And so he goes and talks from the State Department. He has uh, meets with Hadley. He talks with other folks. And he keeps, and in fact, he supports the surge in 2007. So he kind of is uh, remarkable. It gets a little bit of your question, sort of, and not getting his ego caught up in policies that are rejected and simply ratcheting his preference and saying, well, what have we learned and where are we and how do we proceed? And so I think as conditions change and as Gates comes in, which is reflective of you know, kind of how the country was going and Congress was going, then, um, then he sort of regains influence and credibility. Go back to the first Gulf, or first Gulf War, and Schwarzkopf was moving towards Baghdad. Looked like he was unstoppable, and then all, they had that, that big calm. What was Scowcroft's advice to the president on whether Schwarzkopf should go forward and and then uh, defeat uh, Saddam Hussein, right. or whether he should stop? The second part of my question is, what advice would, did, did Scowcroft give? to Schwarzkopf as to what the conditions of the surrender are. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually an important point. And the best account I've read of that is that, uh, that it actually hinges on some poor phrasing. Is that, I don't know if you, I certainly remember, you guys may remember, but after, uh, with this, with the, uh, at the conclusion of the ground war, and you have those columns going back into Iraq, and there are all these pictures, and there's talk about uh, you know turkey shoots and all this stuff, and and it was looking really bad, and and certainly the president, certainly Scowcroft, Powell, certainly the political wing of the Scowcroft, of the of the Bush administration were aware that this is they don't want to be seen as this as this uh, as you know this kind of bully and is piling on. There's also, um, all right, there's several things. Another thing is that their mandate and the reason why they had this coalition with many Arab members was just to repel Kuwait with force of need be. It was not to depose Saddam Hussein. It was not to invade Iraq. In fact, that was very threatening to a lot of their, or undesirable for a lot of their Middle East allies. Now, the part about phrasing is that what happened is Powell talks to Schwarzkopf and says, do you have any objections if we don't, if we uh, stop fighting? And what Scorcroft, I mean, Schwarzkopf doesn't answer directly. He then asks his field commanders. He says, do you have any objections? And when they're getting signals like that from their bosses, well, they say, well, no, that sounds, you know, well, that's fine. We can live with that. But if he'd asked them, what are your thoughts? What should we do? How should we proceed? Should we just go into Iraq a little bit and finish some of these 
you know, red, uh, uh, whatever, the red brigades and yeah. finish some of these and knock out some more of the armored and get some more of that, then I think his generals would have said, well, give us a couple more days. But they weren't given kind of an open slate. They were given already kind of a default option from their boss. And I think given the publicity of what was going on, they said, okay. And so I think they kind of mishandled how they generated that option. It should have been more uh, ground up or a little more of a dialogue and not just, well, we're thinking of stopping. Are you okay with this? Um, but what, as far as Scowcroft advised the president on the conditions of his right, the surrender, the surrender. Um, there they kind of had, um, they'd kind of been told after Panama, uh, and I, there was a concern about interfering with the Pentagon and with the chain of command, and they decided to let Schwarzkopf kind of do that, do dictate that himself, and that's where the business with the helicopters came in and yeah. how that was handled, which were then used to kill Kurds and so forth. Yeah, over here. Well, he didn't make that connection. I was. I was talking about, I was kind of extrapolating about, about he was kind of awareing that, that I mean, he has, listen, he's, he's in some ways believes in a government by mandarins, so that people with the most experience and knowledge should be making the most important decisions, which makes a certain amount of sense, and that's what we have Republican government for, that you have, you elect people to make decisions on your behalf. I mean, some people say you're supposed to represent them, but I'd say certainly at those levels and in those issue areas, you'd say, yeah, you want people to make decisions on your behalf. Uh, but, so even if he's distrustful of partisan politics and, um, and of public opinion in the media, he certainly is a believer in the Constitution and of the people ultimately ruling. And so he would say that as this sort of patriot or nationalist, he would very much be aware of, yes, these are indicators of a government that is on less stable grounds, of a, that is of the decline of legitimacy, of a decline of, uh, you know, of sort of, um, I mean, and I think he could call back and think about the years, again, which I remember, and some of you remember, the years of the mid-'70s, where you have, um, you know, have Vietnam and Watergate and the assassinations and the riots and all sorts of the anti-war movement, all this stuff, which is a very, very difficult time, and I think there's a some resemblances to now, if it's if much more quietly, to uh, to how government is. Um, yeah. Just to address a, a question you, you raised about surrender, the two relevant documents from the NSD forty-five and fifty-two about the Gulf War, and those are actually brilliant documents. I have nothing to do with writing those. I can say that uh, forty-five. Yeah, thanks. But the one thing it missed was war termination. It, that was the, the the missing element of the strategy. Uh, so this helps explain why there was no real preconceived notion of exactly what the terms of the ending of the conflict would be. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because that's one of the things where, of course, the the um, subsequent Bush 43 does, does not a very good job of, on, but, of course, they really didn't have that exactly in place. But because they were stopping at the edge, that wasn't really fully, it didn't have as nearly as deleterious effects. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah. And there were a lot of very heated exchanges between the two of them on a great many issues. Yeah. Uh, with not all that unusual for Colin to say, Schwarzkopf, you aren't doing what I told you to do hmm. in the process. So that plays also in this whole issue of how the determination. The chairman was the one who was most distressed 
about the press about the continued attacks on the retreating ones. And his advice was very strong. Go ahead and terminate the action. His was a much more forceful voice on this than Stokoff. Is Stokoff? No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the realism part, I mean, the Morgenthau and his advisor, uh, Fox, William Fox, um, those kind of uh, were pretty much of the same cloth as what he was learning from Kissinger. So those were all part of knowing kind of these, knowing the factors and thinking about how you, to maneuver with all these different cross-cutting pressures. And, you know, and, you know Kissinger was great at linkages and making these connections, and so was Scowcroft. But in terms of the legitimacy in public opinion, I think this is really just born out of Vietnam War and of how that went. And they realized that they had lost this with, uh, and then they had lost this really in, um, you know, with Congress. They lost this in public opinion. And, I mean, it's interesting. The best harlot of the uh, of the uh, reporting on Vietnam War was never, uh, never a negative. It was always slightly positive at the worst time. But the best harlot of this changing reported becoming more and more critical was the number of deaths, the number of body bags. And so as you have the war protests, and then you have with Watergate, you get the huge switch in the, uh, you know, the Watergate babies coming in in 1974. The, 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 the House turns, you know, much more democratic. And with that, um, you know, I think they, and, and of course, then they cut off the funding, which he blamed as approximate cause for the end of the war. So I think he realized, I mean, this is, I mean, yes, he's aware of legitimacy, but it's also he's really focused on national security and responding to crisis and thinking about, well, how can we combat the, the uh, Soviet Union? How can we uh, make sure we are strong internationally? And there he, I mean, part of this is, is I mean, it's like a, a, a good company, right? You want to have a good brand and you want to persuade people that you are doing things on their behalf. So it's partly out of legit- legitimacy. So you can maybe say it's a, there's a cynical dimension to it. But it's certainly about that, yes, if you're going to have an effective government, you need the support of the people, and you certainly need to have support of key members of Congress, even if Congress overall is the other party, and you need to be able to get sort of important members of the press. And so Kissinger actually trains him about the first um, – he first has uh, meetings with uh, Joseph Alsop, and then he expands to May Greenfield and others, and he kind of expands the number of people, talks to off the record, and becomes – and as a – 
and as an um, Air Force officer, he's always done a lot of briefing, and so he's very good at communicating and teacher. So he's always very good at explaining things and, and speaking very precisely and deliberately, which he, which he does. And so it's, um, but yes, he realized that there had to be this, this public aspect to administrations and for successful foreign policy, and without that, you know, it, it wasn't going to be successful. Yes, actually, let's back here, yeah. Well, it's Iran in the 70s. I, he visited it when he was in the National War College. They had a trip to Middle East, and he met with Shah, actually, his group of about, I think, 16 or so. Um, and so I, I don't look at Iran. I told you I sort of pick my spots and what I focus on, and I don't talk so much about Iran because I really, because it really, you know, it, because what it, it's really under Carter that things really uh, uh, change. So I, I didn't do that. Uh, but in terms of Iran today, he's, he's written columns, and in his book, America and the World with Scowcroft, which you saw there throughout, he's been about negotiations. He's about doing something to make it so they don't feel they need the, 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 uh, uh, the military component of nuclear weapons or mil- nuclear power and just trying to find ways to have this, you know, what is it, the, the, you know the name of the gang of five, whatever, the... Um, the, the, the P5 plus one. P5 plus one, thank you, of, of getting this, the Russia and the other nuclear powers to kind of persuade Iran about, about how they manage it. So he's been quite outspoken on that and written uh, in, in uh, op-eds on this. Um, yeah. Okay, so a big theme recently in government has more or less been transparency. We see that with maybe, um, with maybe Obama's emphasis on transparency within the early years of his government. We see that maybe with um, the rise of Well, I think, I mean, I think you don't want transparency in a lot of things, right? I mean, think about the, um, a lot of things you want to be negotiating. I mean, how did the Constitution, how was that established? It was established behind closed doors. Because once you start making everything transparent, you can't get people to agree because everyone's shown them how they lose or betray their constituents or their ideals. So you ultimately, to have government work, you need actually things where people are protected. I mean, that's how the whole academic process works. You have, you have, you have um, a confidentiality. Um, so I, I think the idea that you just want transparency is a little bit of a red herring. At the same time, you do want accountability. You want clear change of command, and you want clear occasions where, um, and when decisions are made, presumably you have a sense of why they are made, even if you don't necessarily want to have every person tied into every, you know, because you don't want to, say if you're negotiating something, you have to concede. You don't want to be the one who's pointed out as making those concessions. You want to have that, you want to have that kind of protected. So I think that to a large degree, you want you, 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 you have to be wary of um, confident of, of, of all out transparency. Well, we do want to leave time for the book signing at the end. Sure. Uh, so uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Sparrow. Thanks.